when you take a week off, you forget how things work around here a little bit. But I'm glad that you are able to join us on this Palm Sunday, it's a day that starts Holy Week for us, the Passion Week, as we know it for Christians, a week that is set apart with meaning and with hope, as Becky prayed for today. As we look to the life of Jesus, it's an important thing. And it just so happens that as we come here today to celebrate this Sunday, that we're lining up perfectly within our sermon series. It's always cool how that can happen like that. Um, obviously, though, as you read the next few chapters of Luke, um, it does slow down in detail through the events of this week. So we're not going to be able to get to the resurrection part of that in Luke next week. We're going to do something a little bit different. But, you know, when you look at the Gospels, they, each of them slow down during this week because of the importance behind it and all the details and the focus for us as believers. And if you recall, um, I don't always do this callback, but this whole series started a long, long time ago when we, just, we went to search who God is by looking at his names and then what God has done loosely looking at Psalm 105 as our basis for that. And we walk through a lot of the Old Testament stories and narratives to see what God has done for his people. And this is culminated with the look at Jesus by looking through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the greatest thing that God has done for us by sending his son to be our sacrifice, or the sacrifice for our sins to be in our place. It's why we celebrate each week. When we come to a church, it's why as believers we rejoice and we have joy in our life. Because as believers we can be in awe at the majesty of God. It's something that we need to keep to the forefront of our minds because we can be easily distracted or led astray. As Andy talked about last week, we can be so consumed with the busyness in life where we need to frequently get away by ourselves to be alone with God. It's something that we all need uh, to do more frequently, to rest in his peace, his love, his joy amid this chaotic world. This morning, we're going to be reading Luke's account of the triumphant entry, which if you look or listen to closely, is not really an entry. And there's a couple other details that you might notice that could be missing. So pay attention with that. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke 19. We're going to be begin in verse 28 and read through verse 44. Ready? Verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and so those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. 
And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, I pray for your peace your peace that is surpassing all of our understanding to come upon this congregation. Lord, you are the the Prince of Peace, and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, did you see any of the details? Do you know this event well enough to see what may be missing? I mean, the obvious one is that it's called Palm Sunday. There's no mention of palm branches in Luke's account. Also, we see that the the people um, are not shouting out Hosanna in the highest. You know, the Gospels, especially the synoptics, give us different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And it's important for us to understand this a little bit deeper. You know, we, we have to remember each author has an intended audience. Luke's audience is to the Gentiles. Now, obviously, it's assumed on my part that we understand the inspiration of the Holy Spirit behind these things. But when we have authors that have different audiences, you would say things a little bit differently. For instance, with him speaking to the Gentiles, it's not like he's speaking to the Jews who would be more mature in their understanding of God and know some of these terms and know a lot of the references that will be quoted. It'd be similar to where if you're explaining something to a mature Christian versus a child. Now, the mature Christian might have a lot of stuff in their head that can get in the way as an obstacle, which we can see with the Jews. Whereas a child has a childlike faith, innocence to where we can see with the Gentiles. So, you know, when we find differences within the texts, especially within the Gospels, don't let it overwhelm you. Don't let it think, oh, no, something is wrong. We talked about this last night with the Truth Project. But instead, it should drive you to understand more, a little bit deeper, dig a little bit. And I had one of those this week. Uh, In my devotion time with the kids, we were reading Psalm 89. And within it, um, it says it talks about Rahab. It says, you crushed Rahab like one of the slain. And in the middle of reading this to the kids, I'm like, wait a minute, what? That, that just threw a red flag in my mind, you know, because I didn't think that she did anything wrong. She's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, so it didn't match up. 
And instead of just reading over it, I dug a little bit deeper. And I found in the book of Job, Rahab was another term that was used by the other civilizations to describe the sea monster, Leviathan. So then it just it made a lot more sense. You know, it wasn't talking about the person. But the fact that I dug a little bit deeper, I was able to have that revelation. And it's always fun to get that new revelation or that understanding that's brought to your mind. And my hope is each week you're able to do this as well to where you take a message and, and you dig deeper. You find other references. Um, for me, being a pastor, I can, never, I can never listen to a sermon the same. I'm ruined in that way. To where I'm listening to a message, I'd be thinking, okay, this is where I would take it. This is the reference I would make. This is how I would say this. It's a curse. But it's just something that drives you deeper into the text. Understanding that in any text, any given Sunday, I can never cover everything. But my hope and my assumption is that you would continue to keep studying through the week. And as we look at our text this morning, um, I want to make a connection that sometimes doesn't always get made. Uh, a connection to last week's um, perspective, or last week's passage, two weeks ago's passage, that can give us a little bit more perspective. Um, if you recall, Jesus is in Jericho. So Jericho's right here, and he's going to be taking this trip to Bethany, Bethpage area. It's about 13 kilometers, 15 kilometers. So he's, gonna, he's up there right now, and he was... At Zacchaeus' house, he was visiting with Zacchaeus, and he gives this parable. And he was given the parable because of the disciples' attitudes about his coming and wanting to be king and the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. So he gives the parable of the ten minus. And he finishes the parable by saying this in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. And then you look at how our passage starts. As he said these things, he went on ahead. You know, sometimes we have these nice, big, bold headings in our Bible and we just use those as page breaks. Or we, as pastors, have to make a decision, okay, we're going to go, this is the, the scope that we're going to look at today, and then we stop. And we don't always make that connection from verse to verse. But it's very interesting as I read this. Because Jesus is giving them this, this parable. And he doesn't stop to explain it. That means that the parable is for them, that they need eyes to see and ears to hear what he is saying. And he closes this parable by saying, I'm going to slaughter my enemies. And then he just walks away, leaving them perhaps puzzled, perplexed. Like, what does that mean? Oh, and then you have to carry on and follow after him. It's kind of like a wonderful mic drop from Jesus as he just walks away. Now, I don't have too many of those types of moments in my messages, but I do in parenting. I love coming up with creative ways of discipline. And, you know, two of the easiest comparisons, you know, if I say to the kids, it's time to go, and I've told them that they needed to get ready, and they're just dawdling, well, I just start to go. I walk out of the car, or out to the car, start the car, begin to drive away as they're running, putting their shoes on after me. 
Or more frequently, I've instituted that the kitchen is closed at 9 a.m. And when I wake them up and they don't want to come downstairs for breakfast, sorry, the kitchen is closed. I hope you're hungry at lunchtime. Again, sometimes the hard teachings in life need hard lessons to break through our stubbornness. These people, the disciples of Jesus, are stubborn to their ideas of the Messiah and what that means. And again, I cannot stress this enough. We would be in the exact same position as them. We'll get into this a little bit more in the coming weeks as we discuss a little bit more in detail what happens around the Pharisees and the people building their case against Jesus. But I think for us to understand this clearly, we can look to the second coming. You know, you think of the second coming, you have your thoughts, you have your ideas, you know what's going to happen. And if somebody came through that door saying, hey guys, I'm Jesus, how are you today? What would you say? Get out of here. You're blaspheming. You're a heretic. What are you doing? Because we know how Jesus is going to come. That's the exact same mindset of the Jewish leaders or of the disciples. They didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of God. They had these preconceived notions about their faith, and they were stubborn in that. Stubbornness in our beliefs is something that we can all struggle with. Obviously, we stick to those top-tier things of what we believe in because that's the foundation of our faith. That's what we believe in. But, you know, I find in a lot of the conversations that I have, our faith is more like social media. where We're, parent, we're parroting what is around us, the latest memes, what this theologian says, what this pastor says, what this teaching says versus what the Word of God says. We need to base our faith in our own study of the Word and be stubborn for what God says is true because as we talked about last night, we can make the word say anything that we want. We can justify our actions by just quoting single verses or parts of verses. The greatest example of this is the church justifying slavery in America. Using the word of God to continue on with those types of atrocities. Sometimes we narrow our focus too much and we miss the overarching themes of the whole counsel of God. That's why I believe it's so frequently mentioned to humble yourself to where you're putting God and others over your own ideas and your own thoughts. It's difficult. But the disciples would need to get past their presuppositions to understand what Jesus is teaching. So Jesus he just leaves. He begins to walk away, and he travels down here, Bethany and Bethpage. The triangle here is the Mount of Olives, and there's Jerusalem. Now, this would line up with John 11, where Jesus goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're in Bethany. Um, so it's just outside of Jerusalem. 
This would also put um, the triumphant entry somewhere on the road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, according to Luke's description here. And I've got more of a modern picture to help us understand this. Um, directionally, I'm not too sure. Can't quite see the top because of all that. But this is the mount right here. There's some belief that the Mount of Olives is over in this area. I'm just going to treat this whole big thing here as the Mount of Olives. So Jesus could have come up from any of those types of paths, but then he would have had to wind down here through the Kidron Valley and then into Jerusalem. But on the descent, is where and then he would have, uh, as he would have seen the city. Here's the Dome of the Rock. This is the Temple Mount here where the temple would have sat. But this is present day, so this is where that mosque is. Um, so as Jesus is going through this, he begins to weep over the city. And again, we'll discuss that in a little bit, but this can give you kind of a picture of where the entry would have been when they would have been praising him and stuff like that. As at first, probably before he even gets up over the mount, he sends two disciples on ahead to get... Um, to get a colt, to get a donkey for him to ride on. You know, obviously, this is going to be fulfilling some scripture in Zechariah 9. 9. Uh, but I also think it's another subtle use of imagery to understand what a donkey would represent there. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when we look at that verse, we could think, well, why a donkey? What does this represent? What type of meaning does this have? Well, donkeys um, a lot of times would represent peace. Uh, peace in many different situations. An ambassador from another country that was going to do a peace treaty would come riding on a donkey rather than a horse. You know, you think of a horse, somebody's gonna come to conquer. You think of a king. You think of Revelation, when Jesus is coming back on a horse. He's coming back as a king. Here he is coming with terms of peace. And we'll break that down a little bit more in just a moment uh, to make that connection for us. But you know, um, here the donkey should be telling the disciples yet again the humility of Jesus and what this stands for. But perhaps this verse is in their minds. Perhaps they're thinking of Zechariah and they can't get past this line of the king is coming to you. Again, focusing on this king aspect. Forgetting perhaps the parable that Jesus just told them about his purpose of coming, that he needed to go and receive the kingdom and then he would be back. But you know, we look at the instructions that Jesus gives. They're very precise, aren't they? They needed to find a colt that no one has sat on. This would indicate something that is unused, something that is set apart, where we have to have this understanding that anything offered to God would be pure, it would be clean. And understanding that we cannot overlook. And when we look a little bit closer at what he tells them, he says, as you are untying the animal, bring it to me. Bring being the command in that sentence. 
and if conditional. If anyone asks why you are untying it, say, the Lord has need of it. In our American mindset and understandings, how do we take that phrase? How do we take what Jesus is saying here? Let's modernize it. Let's say somebody comes into your driveway or into your garage, gets into your car, hot wires your car, begins to drive away. And you come out of your house saying, hey, what are you doing? And they respond, hey, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> oh, okay, very well, on your way then. Is that how you react? Maybe if they're like, you know, a member of the mob or the mafia and you don't want any trouble. But that's probably not your reaction, is it? You're crying out injustice. They're stealing what's mine. This is unfair. You know, Jesus doesn't say, tell them I'm going to borrow it or I'm going to rent it. Here's some money. Just bring it to me. And you know, because we're sitting here in a church and we're reading this, this account, this narrative, and we know everything works together for God's good and glory, and you know, we can just assume and read over this. But put yourself in this situation. Even the owners say, what are you doing? Why are you untying this animal? We would be incensed. We would be a little upset if somebody is taking that. Now what's interesting here in the language is the cult owners are called kyrioi in the Greek, plural, for what the Lord is called, kyrios. The same term, ownership, master, and Lord. And here's the understanding that we need to have as we continue to hold tighter to the things of this world. Everything is the Lord's. He is the owner. He is the master. We are the stewards, as the very last parable that he just gave explained. And if the Lord says, I have need of it, are we willing and able to let it go? I would say no. At least not until I've spent a few days praying about it had a committee meeting on it, had a majority vote. And then once I discerned through all of that, yeah, okay, Lord, I think you can take this. I put my stamp of approval on this. Such arrogance that we have in our faith. We are reminded frequently in the Word to not think of our stuff as ours, but rather to have a loose hold on it. Or rather to think of what the Lord has blessed us with as a way or means to bless others. I think we can understand this thought process pretty well in terms of our money when it comes to tithing. Most of our, some of our possessions can be used to bless others, to be used to glorify the Lord. But there's more difficult things. What about our children? We're training them up for something. What if the Lord says, I'm calling your son or daughter to the mission field overseas? Are we able to let them go? 
Are we ready to give something that could be precious to us without the guarantee that we would get it back? One such thing is our time. Andy talked about busyness last week. How often do these thoughts run through our mind in terms of conceding time? Okay, God, you can have these 15 minutes, but then the rest of the day is mine. Isn't it all, Lord's? Time is one of our most precious commodities because it's limited. It's fixed. How much time do we waste? But we waste it doing what we want to do. This colt, this donkey, was going to be used in a procession to glorify God, and we don't know what happens to it afterwards. How can what we have be used to glorify God? Or rather, to glorify him with the expectation that it's already his and that we won't get it back. I think that's why time is such a beautiful picture for us here. Because you don't get that last minute that you just spent listening to this sermon back. You chose to be here, to listen or to not to listen. I mean, who knows? As this procession begins, we see how they lay out their cloaks. This would symbolize royalty. It would symbolize a leader's welcome for Jesus. Again, there's no mention of the the palm branches being waved. There's no shouts or cries of Hosanna in the highest. But what we do see here is an interesting connection to peace. They are quoting from a couple places in the Bible. The first part is found in Psalm 118, verse 26. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then the second part found in Luke 2, verse 14, which says, Glory to God in the highest and peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. So, you know, what's, what's interesting to me is this connection from what the disciples are saying here with this triumphant entry at the end of Jesus' life, proclaiming that he is coming to Jerusalem to bring peace, lines up with the incarnation and the angels proclaiming to the shepherds and to the people that here comes the person of peace. And again, so many people wanted Jesus to be the king because they wanted peace from Rome. They didn't need peace from Rome. They needed peace with God. That's the, pre- the peace that he is coming to bring. And for that to happen, a sacrifice would be deemed to be made in their place. This is the purpose of Jesus coming to the earth. This is the purpose of Jesus going to Jerusalem this Passover week. It's the heart of his ministry. We see one last attempt at a complaint here of the Pharisees trying to silence the crowd, telling him to rebuke your disciples. 
again, going back to these blaspheming ideas, people saying that you're the king, shut that type of talk down. You're, lo- you're elevating yourself too highly or you're allowing yourself to be elevated. But Jesus says that if the people were silent, even the rocks would cry out. It's another phrase that I, I personally want to dwell on a little bit more this week. A comparison between an inanimate object crying out praise to God versus an Israelite, a chosen elect person race that, that could not, that would not praise God because of who Jesus is. And it seems ridiculous that an inanimate object would cry out to God and for what God was doing and a person wouldn't until we compare our own lives. Is our life full of praise for God? Or is it just on Sundays or just when something good happens? And I think that Jesus continues to elaborate this point in this next section. This point about the Jews as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. How the stones will not be uh, left on top of one another. It's only one of two places in the Bible where we see Jesus weeping. And here he is weeping at the people's unbelief. That they're not understanding the means of peace with which he is coming into the city. He is weeping at the fate of the city itself and the sinners inside who are rejecting the grace of God. It's an attitude, I think, if you've shared the gospel with the lost, you may have experienced. Where you weep and you plead for a person after you present the gospel message and they reject it. But you know, people, they don't want to, they don't see their sin as a problem. They don't think that they need Jesus. They don't understand their need for a Savior, nor do they want to. Their hearts are hardened and they're rejecting. Jesus cries over the fact that Zion, the holy city, is full of people who are rejecting God and it will be destroyed. He talks about Jerusalem a couple times here in Luke, in Luke chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 13. He describes Zion as a city who has rejected and kills prophets. But he also shows his compassion of how he longs to gather them to himself. But they are not willing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is experiencing a judicial hardening because of the rejection of God. And Jesus' words here are going to prove to be true when their enemies of Rome come and destroy the city, taking the temple down stone by stone. Something that has continued to cause weeping in Jerusalem even to this very day. To where you can go to the Wailing Wall and see Jews wailing because of the state of the Jews and the temples not being there. I pray that we would have eyes to see clearly what Jesus is telling his disciples today. Again, fast forwarding to our own situations. 
as I looked at this descent, as I looked at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, I paused in my heart to wonder if Jesus were to descend today, would he be weeping over the state of the church? Are we weeping over the state of the church? The state of our hearts? Those in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they think they're fine. They think their righteousness is good. They think they've got the right understanding that Jesus is going to come and be the king. Don't we all? As we think back through this passage today, there's a few things that I want us to focus on this week. First and foremost, I think that we need to understand the peace that Jesus came to bring. It wasn't the world peace that's often decried in the beauty pageants or on the news cycles. It's the most important type of peace that you can attain, and that is peace with God. As a sinner separated from him, having peace with God is the most important thing that you can long for. The redeemed state is something that everyone should long for, but sadly we know too well the people in this world, the lost, look to themselves. There's just thinking about the Truth Project video last night and just how many different views of who God is just makes your head spin. But Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus says this about peace in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you're a believer this morning, it is a good reminder for you to the state that you are in, that you have peace with God through Jesus, who came to bring that peace at the cost of his life. And we should be worshiping and glorifying and praising God every moment of every day. Our time should be used, spent on that. Because we understand the peace and the separation that was there before it. I think another thing that we need to look at is the understanding of our own stubbornness and hard hearts. And this could be in many different areas of our life. This can be areas of what we believe about God that might be wrong, understandings that are unhealthy misconceptions about stewardship and possessions and what we have. As we saw in our passage, Jesus is continuing to try to get his disciples to understand his purposes. But they continue to have their own ideas. They're throwing this triumphant entry for the king, a king that they think is coming to take control of Jerusalem. How many ideas and notions about Jesus do we need to have checked? And by checked, I mean checked with the word of God. So many times we go to other things. Good things, good resources, but not necessarily the word of God. Both these things, I think, align us or can align us to the will of God. To where they're not going to be obstacles so long as we're in tune to what God would have for us. But this takes time. 
that precious commodity, time in his word and time in prayer. It takes intentional time, dedication to be his disciples, freely giving up our time for him, to love him and our neighbor. So this Sunday we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, even though we are on this side of the cross, knowing full well what's going to happen. But as we enter this Passion Week, perhaps this year we can focus a little bit deeper on the peace that is won for us and the implications of what that means for us as believers. Because yes, he is our king, he is our Lord, and he will come again triumphantly, but not on a donkey, on a horse. It's something that we long for. It's something that should create urgency and imminence in our hearts and minds as we share the gospel message to those around us. Gospel message is one of salvation, of peace. And as we know that his procession is coming, we need to be mindful of it. We need to watch for it because the time is fixed and the time is short. He is coming again. Let us pray. Father, as we enter into this holy week, I pray that you would allow us to focus on the events of this week. in how triumphantly people are shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And five days later, shouting crucify him. Lord, help us to not disassociate ourselves from the text, to understand that it is our sin that has nailed him on the cross. We don't, we don't have to look for blame past us for we are all sinners and we have all fallen short. But praise be to you for your plan of redemption. Lord, we cry out to you in worship and in thanksgiving at the grace that we have received, at the peace that has been restored through what your son did on the cross through how death could not hold him and he was raised on the third day. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray for a week where we can spend time resting in you. Not the things that we possess, not the things of this world, but resting in you. Pray for right perspective on how to use the things that you've blessed us with. As we talked about in Sunday school, just living in a life of comfort in the lush areas. Lord, Lent is a time that we can focus on those 40 days in the wilderness to give things up from this life, to focus more on you. I pray for more Lenten seasons 
in our days. Continue to teach us, to continue to give us understanding, to have the passion to go to your word, to seek your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.